0: Before we get started with today's show, I'm here to tell you about Brez Coffee Company, made by gamers for gamers right here on the Gulf Coast in Pensacola, Florida. Do you like lighter medium roast? Then try the Necro Medium, Holy Grail Light, or Stamina Boost. Or if you're like me and prefer Darker Roast, try the Critical Dark or the Koo Slayer Mocha Roast. But what if you can't pick just one? Then try one of their specialty sample packs perfect for an all-night gaming, or in the case of my fellow filmmakers, an all-night editing session. Forget about all the crappy coffee you've been buying at the grocery store, and head on over to brezcoffeeco.com. Use the promo code DDE at checkout to get 10% off your order. Have you ever thought to yourself after listening to this podcast, why didn't Derek ask this question? Or why didn't he ask that question? I know I certainly have. Well, you get the chance to do that, if you sign up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast, you get the chance to ask guests of the show a question. If you're a fan of the top five list, you get the chance to vote on what the topic will be. You also get early access to episodes, accessibility to my film scripts, and so much more. And you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash Podcast. And we want to thank our patrons, Tim Spivey, Donna Diamond, and Shannon Williams. Thanks so much for your continued contributions, and now, on with the show. Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast, where every week I take a look inside the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. I am your host, Derek Diamond, And coming up a little bit later on in the show, you'll be hearing my conversation with documentary filmmaker Christopher McDonald. He's here to talk about his documentary Queen of the Beach, which he filmed over a multi-year span and has one of the craziest and most eye-opening stories that I've ever seen unfold in just a film in general, not so much just documentary. But that's what's so fascinating to me about documentary filmmaking is the realism and the rawness that you feel that you get to an extent with narrative film, but you feel it so much more in documentaries. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. I've got to talk about the new trailers that dropped first being the matrix resurrections, which I was kind of kicking myself and laughing at myself last Thursday when the trailer dropped because i had already put out last week's episode I know I went over the footage that was shown at CinemaCon and talked about how excited I was to see some form of it. I didn't expect it to be pretty much the same thing that was shown at CinemaCon, but either way, I was stoked to see that, you know, like a teaser was dropped on Tuesday after I had recorded everything for the show. Then Thursday, the trailer was released, and I've watched it, four or five times since it came out. And I'm, I'm so excited for this movie. And I I think I dabbled into this a little bit on last week's show, but I was 12, 13 years old when the first Matrix came out in 99. And I remember just being blown away by the story, the special effects, which as I talked about influenced film still to this day, a lot of what you see in modern filmmaking when it comes to visual effects, originated from The Matrix. I loved the characters, the setting. It was just such a cool movie, and even the sequels, while I don't think they're as good as the original, they still have their moments. And I'm excited to go back, because I want to go back and watch the first three before this new one comes out. But the trailer... After being blown away from it, you know, I started watching it again as more of a, from an analytical point. And it definitely raises a lot of questions. One, how is, and spoilers for those who haven't seen the original trilogy, but how is Neo and Trinity alive? What happened with Morpheus? Why is he different? Because, you know, the the actor who is playing the new version of Morpheus, uh, Yahya, Abdul Mateen II, has come out and said that he is playing Morpheus. Now, I don't know if this is a younger version, if it's a different iteration. My theory, and I'm curious as to how this is going to play out on screen, I personally think that Neo has been plugged back into the Matrix. But Trinity, who we also see in the trailer... I think her and Morpheus are computer programs that are designed to look like the two of them. Now, for what purpose Neo has been resurrected, I don't know. But it's interesting because you can go through and watch the trailer, him speaking with the therapist, saying that he's having these dreams that don't really feel like dreams. What does that all mean? And then you see him taking the blue pills Which, if you remember from the original movie, you take the red pill, then you exit the Matrix. If you take the blue pill, then you stay in Wonderland, as Morpheus said. He's taking these blue pills, and I I think they're prescribed to him by those who are running the Matrix so that he forgets who he actually is. Because we see him relearning his abilities throughout the trailer. So I'm I'm very curious to see what happens. It borrows a lot of elements from the original film and a lot of people have been critical of that, but I'm I'm just excited to watch it. I'm excited to go back into that universe and I I do believe that it is a sequel and not a reboot if you will, because and watching other YouTube videos and really watching the trailer, you can see elements that took place in the sequels that carry over into this new one. So I, I foresee there being like a passing of the torch in some way to a character that we haven't seen yet. Who knows what's going to happen? I, I do believe that there will be more Matrix films after this if we'll see... Uh, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss beyond this film, I don't know. I would certainly like to, but let's just see what happens. I'm, I'm just along for the ride when it comes to the new Matrix movie. I'm, like I said, I'm excited to go back into that universe. It'll be fun. It comes out, uh, I believe, uh, December 22nd. Yes, December 22nd is when it comes out uh, in theaters, as well as HBO Max. I definitely want to see it in a theater. I never saw the original in theaters. I did see the sequels, both, uh, in the movie theater when they came out in 2003. So this will be a fun, fun day at the movies. And I, I love that, especially over the last few years, it seems like more big releases are coming out in December. You know, the the summer's great and everything. I know it hasn't been the last couple of years due to COVID, but I I look forward to December movie going because the year's kind of winding down. Uh, Work for me is very, it's our most relaxed period of the entire year. So get to take, you know, some time off, go to the movies, hang out at home. We'll see what happens. I, I, I would say for those who are being overly critical of this movie, just... Watch it and go along for the ride. If it sucks, it sucks, but I don't think it will. I think it's going to be... I don't foresee it being as good as the original Matrix, but I think it will be better than Reloaded and Revolutions, or at least I hope so. We'll see what happens. But the other trailer that I wanted to talk about uh, dropped very, very recently, and that would be for the Hawkeye series that will be premiering November 24th on Disney Plus. And I will say this, I have loved the Marvel shows and I know I've talked a lot about Marvel especially the last couple of months on the show with Shang-Chi, Loki, even going back to you know a little bit of Falcon and Winter Soldier. But the this one like I like the Hawkeye character. I think he's actually a little underrated. I, I enjoyed seeing him take on a more prevalent role in, especially Endgame. And I think it's cool that he's getting his own series. You know, it seems like his his past being Ronan is catching up to him. And it, it doesn't go too much into detail as to what the series is about other than that. And it takes place during Christmas time. So it'll be fun to argue is Hawkeye a Christmas series. Because, you know, the whole, like, is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate should be. I know that's coming on the Internet, and I'm just going to sit back and watch. Because uh, I one of my favorite things to do is to just watch people get triggered on the Internet. It's, it's hilarious to me. But I'm looking forward to it. The Marvel shows haven't disappointed me yet. I like some more so than others, but obviously I'm going to watch it. I think it will be good. Will it be great? I don't know. It's tough to tell based off of one trailer, but I'm I'm excited for it. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, anything Marvel, you know, my fiance and I enjoy it very much. So it'll definitely be a a day one watch for us when when Hawkeye comes out. So fun stuff to look forward to around the holidays. As I mentioned before, you know I I love the the holiday releases because. Years winding down and everything, but I won't get into that again. But uh, coming up next on the show is my conversation with documentary filmmaker Christopher McDonnell. And I love chatting with documentary filmmakers because it's, there are some similarities, but there are also major differences when it comes to documentary filmmaking. And I, I love you know, picking their brains about why do they feel so passionate about this topic? How did they come across the topic? What, what led them to what became the story? And this was no exception and was one of the more fascinating documentaries that I've heard about. And I'm talking about Queen of the Beach, which I had the pleasure of watching. I thought it was very good documentary. I think it told a very powerful story and I won't dive too much into spoilers one, because I think everybody should watch it. And Christopher can explain it so much better than I can. So hopefully you all enjoy hearing this conversation as much as I had being a part of it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Christopher McDonald. Welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast. And this week I'm joined by filmmaker Christopher McDonald. Christopher, how are you, sir?
1: Hey, I'm pretty good. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Excited to talk with you uh, about your documentary that we'll get to uh, here in just a bit. And you were telling me, so you're based out of uh, Vancouver. And I don't get to actually speak with many filmmakers who live in Canada, but I know Vancouver is a very popular destination for filmmakers as far as filming projects, like a lot of, you know, yep. CW shows like Arrow, Flash. Uh, I think Superman and Lois is filmed there as well. Uh, so are, are you a, a lifelong resident of, of Canada?
1: Uh, lifelong resident of Canada. Actually grew up in Ontario, small town of Aurelia. I was just telling you now that I, I know that you're broadcasting from Florida, that our family spent a lot of spring breaks in Florida year after year doing the snowbird thing. And then I moved out to Vancouver to go to UBC um, and ended up staying and, and very quickly kind of switching to the Vancouver film school and jumping into the, the film scene pretty early, actually.
0: What was it that specifically made you want to get into filmmaking?
1: So I'm one of those guys who knew early on what I wanted to do in life it um, doesn't mean that I've, I've always been able to achieve that, but I knew, I mean, when I was uh, 16, um, and this is back in the 80s, I bought a video camera when no one had video cameras. Uh, if you remember, to put this in context, Back, in the fu- back to the Future had just come out um, with Matthew, or what's his name, Michael J. Fox's character, and he has the camcorder in the movie, and I don't know, maybe that put it in my head. But I bought a camcorder, started uh, filming some comedy sketches, and when I was seventeen, I pitched a show to the uh, cable network in my small town of Aurelia, Ontario, and they ended up broadcasting my show. We did nine episodes. It was called Solo Shy. So at seventeen years old, I was already running a show.
0: That's insane. So you you had pretty early access to what goes on behind the scenes to you make film and television happen. That's usually Uh, the way it works out is that someone goes to school and then they go into the workforce. So it was kind of the opposite for
1: you. I threw myself in and learned uh, self-taught really. I was editing with two VCRs, just connected to each other and just using the pause and play buttons. Like it's pretty crazy what I was doing back then. And then moved to, uh, to Vancouver When I enrolled in the Vancouver Film School, um, that's when I I got, you know, more of a professional training of how to do things. But I actually went from there. I started working as an extra in the film industry. Uh, That put me on set because, as you said, there's a lot of production work that happens here. And um, so that put me on set. And now I'm seeing, you know, the pros do their thing and a, a full crew and, learning the hierarchy of, of how that works and uh, landed my first gig working as a production assistant on the X-Files. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. The X-Files was shot in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And I was able to jump onto season two, um, the year that they won the Golden Globe for, for best uh, TV drama. So it's kind of in the heyday of that show, which really elevated the stature of, of the filming in Vancouver itself. And being on the show, you know, that was the biggest education probably that I was able to to get.
0: I can imagine so because, you know, I remember growing up the X-Files being like one of those shows that you had to watch because it was something that people would talk about all the time. You know, the day after the show would air, whether you were at school or you were at work, people were talking about it. So it almost like forced you to see it, that way you could even you'd be a part of casual conversation. I can imagine you know, being almost like a sponge for learning how a set works and what goes into making a show happen. I can't imagine a much better environment for that time.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. It was, uh, you know, and filming hours back then were crazy. So I'd be working 18 hour days but like you said, it was one of those shows that was, was really hot at the time. And so we would have crowds of, of people, usually kids, that would come to the locations everywhere we were filming. And so my job as a PA, part of my job was to try to, you know, keep the audience at bay when, when the stars were out and help kind of accommodate the autograph signing or, or things like that. So
0: that was fun, and I think yeah, I've heard other filmmakers say this as well. uh, Being a PA on a set, and I can imagine being a PA on a set of you that magnitude, you can't help but pick up things, you know, like watching others work and how they operate things. Whether it's the actors, the director, director of photography, really any job, I can imagine. You know, like that, that just being such a great environment to learn. And I I preach that to anybody who wants to work in film. But as I said before, I can't imagine a much better environment and a much better set to be on than a show of that magnitude.
1: Yeah, I think it was helpful that I did uh, film school, which taught me the basics and where we did hands-on with, I mean, we were editing with a Steenbeck. At the time, which is like a 16 millimeter, um, you know, film editor, cutting negatives, learning how to be a first aid on set, learning all these these tools, and then to be actually immersed in the set life and see others who had been doing that for 20 years, where that was their career, uh, basically performing, just elevated that level of education, and then taking that you know to my own projects. Um, and I guess adapting as a director from those skill sets that I had picked up and, and you know, whatever I had learned along the way. Yeah, it's a pretty good um, strategy.
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely. So once your time working on the X-Files ended, where did you go from there? Did you start to do your own projects after so, yeah. your time with the X-Files was over?
1: So I actually... I never stopped making films, even while I was um, in film school or working on set. Um, And so I was making short films and I had written a feature film that placed in a national competition in Canada. I was trying to raise financing for that. As part of my my plan, I wanted to shoot a short film as kind of a promo film or or a trailer. Um, And use that to help raise the financing for the feature. And uh, so I tapped into the X-Files crew. I ended up having over 150 volunteers work on this project that I did. It was a four-day shoot, 35 millimeter, um, you know, so expensive equipment. And I had the camera operator from the X-Files DP this for me. Oh, wow. Various other people, the sound mixer. So I would, because of the connections that I had working on, on the show and people who work in the industry know you become like a family, you're a film family. So so yeah, I was able to um, to benefit from that. And so we, we put, cut, like we shot a really nice 10-minute piece, um, which ended up helping me raise the financing for my first feature film that I would shoot several years later
0: that's amazing in the sense that one, you were able to get that amount of people in general, but the fact that you, oh. know, you made these connections from a show like the X-Files, I can imagine that that had to be a, a really heartwarming and gratifying feeling when everyone volunteered and said, yeah, I would love to help you out with this.
1: Yeah, it's, it pretty great. And in addition to, I mean, one of the executive producers, I think he's passed away now. He let me use his editing um, studio. And then we were also uh, given what they call short ends of the film. So when you shoot on film, um, I think you get about four minutes per reel. They don't always use the four minutes, right? So sometimes there's 30 seconds left over and that's called a short end. And so they'll wrap that up, put them in little cans and they're usually discarded. But we we uh, were given those short ends. We shot our entire film that way. Yeah, it was crazy. So just lots of resources that I was able to tap into, and by working on show that show and other shows, it really launched my own career. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, I a part of me wishes that I had been into film. And part of it is because of my age, but I do respect those who worked with film. You know, everything's digital now and it's so much easier to just, you know, take a an SD card or whatever type of card you're using, plug it into a computer and you get the footage from there. Yeah. I've, I've worked with, with film a little bit in a photography class, you know, like with developing film, like the way they used to do, you know, back in the, you know, the old newspaper type era. So mm-hmm. I, I respect so much what filmmakers of that era did, because you look at the 80s and 90s and you look at you know, some of the most iconic films and TV that's ever been made from, you, know, you mentioned the X-Files, you also mentioned Back to the Future. You have know, so many great pieces of art that will live on long after all of us are gone, all shot on film. And I, I think that's, I think it's amazing.
1: You know, the difficulties as well. When you're shooting on film, like back in the day, the director's not even watching the, t- the, the live take as it happens. I mean, we take these things for granted. Nowadays, you know, you have like the big iPad or whatever. So everything is watched in real time. But like old school filmmaking, the director relied on, on the cinematographer. And I, like, even when I shot my own film, I'd be standing beside my DP um, he's the eyes of watching the frame, and I'm standing beside him watching the actors. So it's a very collaborative process that has really changed. And I'm sure, you know, for the better in so many ways.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it, it makes you really appreciate the technology we have now, mm. for sure. Yeah. So uh, talk to me a little bit about your uh, award-winning documentary, Queen of the Beach, which you directed. Uh, what, what inspired you to want to tackle a documentary and uh, this subject specifically? And how did, how did the process go from the idea to ultimately how it was made?
1: So this is one of those projects that could only be made with the technology that we have today. Um, I was one man with a camera uh, basically flying to India and finding my subject matter and, you know, doing everything um, from arranging, you know, the flights and, and the hotels uh, to coordinating the locations to, to having waivers signed and interviewing uh, the people who are in the film while I'm filming and trying to direct at the same time. And then, and managing, you know, the audio, I'm reading the levels of of that as well. Um, Now, why did I shoot this film? So back in the mid nineties, I shot a documentary in West Africa. So I had, I had done a documentary. That was a 60 minute film that played in some festivals. And um, I had a taste of the developing world. I knew that I loved to travel. I knew that there's, there's a lot of complications when you travel and you're trying to, to make a film. Um, the film I shot in West Africa, for example, I actually uh, had had malaria while I was working on it. So I was out for the count for about a week. But this particular film, I had been invited by a small team of people from my church to go to India and film what they were doing. And they were paying me a little bit to do that. And so I thought if I'm going to be in India, I'm going to, you know, let's shoot a documentary as well. I didn't know what to shoot. Um, I had, you know, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about India and I wrestled uh, with trying to come up with a topic for probably like a month. When I was in India, my first day, I even went out with the camera in Mumbai and I found these kids playing cricket um who you know they immediately stop everyone comes rushing towards me because you know I'm I kind of stand out I'm a white guy I've got a camera on my shoulder and uh so we had some small talk and then I asked them I I said to them you know I'm here to shoot a documentary what topic should I do a film on and they threw out some ideas and then all together they all started saying child labor child labor like it's the one thing they really wanted um, you know, you're a Canadian, take the message back. We have a problem with child labor. So even though they said that, I, I must have ignored it. I, I stumbled upon Westerners who were in India for spiritual pilgrimages. And I started seeing that this was actually a big thing. Um, you know, whether it was school groups who were there for a month long uh, Yogananda kind of retreat. Um, there was an American uh, group doing that. Or there were two Canadians in, in the, the holy city of Varanasi, um, you know, exploring yoga and Reiki and talking to the holy Babas every day. So I I started filming a story about spiritual West about Westerners on spiritual journeys while I was shooting the other project for 28 days, zigzagging around the country doing this, eight airplanes. I say planes, trains and auto rickshaws. And at the end of it, I was so burnt out that uh, I decided, you know, I'm gonna go to Goa and lay on a beach and take two days for myself just as a vacation. And that was the whole plan. And I didn't know much about Goa. I went through my lonely planet and found what looked like the most lively beach, Anjina Beach. Went to Goa, um, thinking I was done filming, left the camera in the hotel, and when I hit the beach, I was I was just blown away with what I saw, because this was unlike anything that I'd seen in India so far, mostly because of the foreigners. It was just a sea of scantily clad white foreigners um, being serviced or being served by by the locals. Um, cows roaming about freely. Uh, hippies, you know, with long hair and, and, you know, the men wearing these long type European outfits, uh, trance music, um, alcohol and drugs on open display. And, um, but the thing that grabbed me the most, literally, I think I say that in the film, it was the child vendors. Like as soon as I, I hit the beach, it was these young kids, mostly young girls grabbing my arm, Uh, trying to lead me to their shops to buy their clothes or jewelry or their trinkets. And I was really struck by that and by the intelligence and the business savvy of these girls who were, you know, I mean, it's the one that I ended up making the movie about she's nine years old. And so she was one of the three girls that led me to her shop. Um, I knew my vacation was over i arranged with them i said tomorrow can i bring my camera back and and just you know sit in the shadows and film you guys for the day and they said no problem so i did that i brought my camera the next day and it was mostly jokes and laughs this young girl breaking out into spontaneous song um you know starting to shine above above the rest is being really charismatic and energetic and then i sat down and i started asking them some hard questions And I asked this girl, um, Chilpa, who was using her English name, Sonia, at the time, whether she had any dreams in life. What do you want to do when you get older? And she told me that she wanted to go to school. There were some things that led up to her finally opening up, but she opened up and with her tears, with her eyes welling up, she said, I want to go to school. That's my dream. And I asked her if she had friends that go to school. And she's yeah, I see them every day. And I asked her how long she's been working on the beach. And she said since she was five years old. And then I learned that she's the sole provider for her family. There's six of them. And she's the one on the beach every day bringing home the money. Um, and that really, you know, made a connection and touched me. But a day later, I was back on a plane to Canada. So I didn't know what to do with that. I came home thinking I'd shot this one film, but the story that resonated the most with me was of this young girl um, and her life. And so I ended up having an opportunity to return the following year, went back to Goa, um, not knowing if they'd still be there. And as soon as I hit the beach, Chris, Chris, these these girls, uh, they all came running to me. They remembered me fondly. Um, Shilpa then introduced me to her mom and brought me to her home and, you know, I met the family and I I basically continued filming and the story evolved from there. And so That's,
0: that's so fascinating.
1: Yeah. So this story that began by happenstance begins when Shilpa is nine finishes when she's 21. I ended up 11 years in her life and, and over the course of five trips,
0: I was about to ask how frequently you went back to find out more about her story.
1: Yeah. So I went back. Uh, so she was nine. And then when I went back, she was 11. Third trip, she was 12. Then there's a break um, where we actually lost contact. I left a phone with her. And six months after returning to Canada, it went dead. And I was trying to reach out to every other number that I had. And, and, but basically, we lost contact. And then five years later, I hopped on a plane and went back. And this is kind of a pivotal point in the film. Um, So I don't know how much I want to say, but I basically found her. It was a surprise. And the two of us continued the journey from there. And much of the film then plays out when she's 17 years old.
0: Wow. Were you, when you asked if you could film them initially, were you surprised that they were so open to it?
1: At this point, I wasn't. If I were beginning the project, I would say yes, but actually there was hardly any resistance in India. People love the camera and they also love pointing the camera at me. Like there were many times, this is what's funny. Like I was able to film people quite openly. They'd be natural. They'd, there was very little resistance from, from people and especially these girls. Uh, but I had occasions as well where I'd be on the airplane and the guy beside me would pull out his phone. And then this literally happened. He leaned into my shoulder and took a selfie of the two of us. He didn't, you know, introduce himself to me or anything. It's just, I don't know. There was a time I was running on the beach. I was out jogging on this beach and these three guys started running alongside me and filming me and they were laughing and joking. Maybe it was funny to see, to see me running but yeah, so it's
0: very reciprocal there. That's so fascinating in the sense that you know when you go to a completely different culture, you don't like you don't know how they're going to react if you say, "Oh, let me, can I bring my camera and essentially film you doing your job."
1: Yeah. You, yeah. you just
0: don't know. So that that's that's crazy that not just her specifically, but it seemed like the entire culture really welcomed you with open arms. That's that's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they did. I mean, I go back to her village um, several times, but it's during our third trip and it's the same thing, you know, I was able to walk around with the camera and people are very receptive. Sometimes, you know, the problem is that they, they pose. That is the problem that you get people looking at the camera and smiling or waving or something when you're trying to capture something natural. Mm -hmm. But as far as me filming Shilpa and her friends, I knew that they had to work and I learned early on that they had a quota of what they had, how much money they had to make for their season and that there were, were repercussions if they didn't make that. So I was basically buying their time early on. I cut a deal with them so that they knew that, you know, if, if they spend time with me and they're losing business as a result, I'm going to compensate for that.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. That's how we started. Really, once we became closer and, um, you know, midway, Shilpa started calling me her brother. I, you know, she's my sister. So, you know, things changed after that. But in the early days, you know, we had to have that understanding.
0: Right. When you initially found out her story and the fact that she was providing for her own, her whole family from an early age, what kind of emotional impact did that have on you?
1: Yeah, it's it's just so surprising, right? I mean, when you and I think back, like you think back when you're nine years old, can you imagine that you're the one responsible for paying for the the house rent and and put food on the table? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And in her family, she she has three older sisters and two of them were married off. And so what happens... I, sh- I should talk a little bit about, the, you know, how girls are, are basically treated in her culture and much of India, but of course, not all of India, but much of India and much of her culture, it's very much a man's world. And so in, in her world, um, the boys get the privileges and she had an older brother. He went to school and he went to school because she was paying for him to go to school When she was 12 years old and he was 14, she was paying for him to go to school, even though this was her childhood dream, right? But he's a boy. And so largely, the girls in her culture are are born and put out to work as soon as they can talk. So Shilpa was begging in a mosque when she was four years old. And then she was working on the beach when she was five. The girls will work all day um, come home, do the cooking, do the cleaning, um, and then go back, you know, to work the very next day. And the boys, I, her father was an alcoholic and I knew him during this time. And every time I saw him, he would be in a bit of a stupor. I learned that, uh, Shilpa actually gave him a daily allowance so that he could buy his booze. Wow. you know. And yeah, so, so you learn these things and then, then you learn the conditions of, of the work as well that, and this is, you know, the story of child labor, that there's actually a network of adults all profiting from the children who are working on the beach and, and in any type of child labor, presumably. But in Shilpa's case, um, she had the boss man who is very mysterious. I was never able to meet him. He never showed his face. But he's the guy she owed a a monthly quota to. And she basically would work on the beach for six months during the tourist season and be expected to make uh, so much money. And, And she told me, other girls told me as well, if they don't make their quota, the boss will beat them. So what they end up doing is borrowing money from loan sharks they try to, you know, pay for, because the, the clothes and the jewelry that they have, it's all on rent. So they borrow this money. And I said, well, what happens if you can't pay back your, you know, the man you borrowed from? Oh, he'll set fire to shop. So this is what they're dealing with. And then, you know, you think, you know I don't want to say too much about the police, but allegedly, you know, and I the girls were all telling me, they're collecting handouts every week as well. Um, And then you have the shop owners and all these people that are are profiting from a system that works. And it works because people like me come in and we feel pity for these young girls. So we end up buying things that we don't want or don't need. And so at one point um, early on, I decided to try to help her to go to school. And that's what much of the story evolves into. It's this the difficulty and, and the obstacles that I uncover trying to help uh, this young girl get off the beach and get into a classroom and, and fulfill her own dream. And so I went to um, an NGO and there's many in India who are dedicated, uh, like non-government organizations dedicated to helping children that are impoverished go to school. And uh, so I, I tried to involve them and so, you know, the facts in the film, like, like what I learn and what we see, it's coming from the people on the ground. So you don't have to just take my word for it. It's, you know, this is a problem and it's recognized um, throughout the country. And there are many people trying to, to change that paradigm um, to end child labor and to ensure that children like Shilpa get an education and are able to to achieve their full potential
0: and and props to you for taking someone who was you know at the time when you guys met was a complete stranger that lives in on the other side of the world and you you helping really is inspiring to me and hopefully to anyone else who is listening because i mean it's, it's what you have to do you know if you you help you pay it forward and things like that so that's, that's great to hear. Uh, do you still keep in contact with her despite the fact that the documentary's done?
1: Yeah, so actually, uh, so we're in touch all the time um, with her family. I'm very close with everyone in her family. Um, when I'm there, I call her mom Ama, which is the Hindi word for, for mom. And mm-hmm. her sisters, they're all my sisters. India, I love India. You know, it's like when I walk the streets in India, the, little, the kids will call me uncle, you as well. If you walk the streets there, they're gonna call you uncle. And the men will call you brother automatically. I mean, the, the men and women, you're gonna be brother to everyone. Everyone is a brother, everyone is a sister. Um, now with your question, so I did five trips in the course of the film, filming, finished the film, submitted it to some festivals, It was received in in several festivals in India. And I was fortunate enough that there were four festivals playing within a three week span uh, in January of 2020. So I went back to India in January of 2020, just before the pandemic shut down the world, right? And uh, at this this point, actually I left out a detail. Well, Shilpa, so she's now married. So my fifth trip was to attend her wedding and the sixth trip when I arrived, she was pregnant. So now, oh, yeah, so I was able to spend some quality time with her and her husband uh, while she was pregnant. I took them to the hospital one day for, you know, just a checkup. So, yeah, we're very close and, and we've had some, some good quality time um, during the making of the film and, and uh, beyond as well.
0: That's fantastic. And that, that's such a, such an inspiring story. Uh, I, I did want to ask you also, as, as we start to wrap up here, uh, is Queen of the Beach available for anyone who wants to see it? Is it available to watch online?
1: Yeah, so Queen of the Beach is available in most English-speaking countries right now. It's coming to French-speaking countries in the middle of September, and it's playing on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, Google Play, those are the big platforms. There's other platforms. It's on Microsoft, Rock 10 But uh, yeah, that's where it's at right now. We're trying. Um, so it's in the US. It's in Canada. It's in the UK. And I have a list. It's, it's pretty amazing to know. I mean, it's playing in Africa. It's playing in Russia. So it's pretty amazing to know the the reach that we have. Uh, but we don't have uh, distribution secured yet for India. And I get a lot of messages daily. You know, where can we watch this? When is it coming to India? So that's something we are working on.
0: Fantastic. And last thing I want to ask you before we get out of here, uh, what is one piece of advice that you could give uh, to an aspiring filmmaker?
1: So, yeah, I've been asked this a few times. I would just say to never give up it's I'm sure they hear that all the time. But the problem is when you're making a film, if like I self financed this and and I shot this over a number of years, you'll have your supporters, but you'll also have a lot of naysayers. And I had a lot of people tell me how crazy I was. Um, you know, when I decided to go back on my fifth trip, having had no contact with Shilpa in five years, even my dad thought I was nuts. You know, what if you don't find her? It's because it's expensive and you have to take time off work to do that. But ultimately, I would just say, you know, if you have a vision and you believe in it, you have to believe in yourself. And hopefully you'll have supporters who can can rally behind you. If you don't, they're going to come. Um, but either way, it's you believe in yourself. I have a model on my website, never surrender the dream. And so that's kind of what I live by.
0: I like that. Uh, what is your website and do you have any social media that you like to plug so the listeners can follow? Yeah.
1: So it's, it's mostly, it's my nickname, Cleach, which is C-L-E-E-T-C-H-E, which I picked up in high school incidentally um, with a Spanish teacher who mispronounced Chris. And so he would call me, Cleech! Cleech! and then of course my friends, you know, jumped on that. And pretty soon I was Cleach. So I have a website, which is cleach.com on Instagram. I'm cleach and on Facebook, we have a Facebook page, uh, which is cleach, but I think queen of the beach will take you there. So if you look up queen of the beach on Facebook, that's probably where I'm the most active and we'll of course be posting a link to, to your show after.
0: Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and share your story. This was inspiring and awesome. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed being on here.
0: Thanks again to Christopher McDonald for coming on the show for that wonderful conversation. As I mentioned in the intro, I very much enjoyed watching Queen of the Beach. Be sure to follow the film on Facebook to find out where you can watch it online and find out what Christopher will be up to next. And if you wanna follow this show on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. If you want to subscribe to the show, I'm on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast for free, just search for the Derek Diamond Experience. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews I get, the more visible I become to the podcasting public. You can also watch video versions of the show on YouTube. Just search for Derek Diamond. I'm also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Diamond Podcast. If you want early access to episodes, vote on show topics and so much more. Just head on over to Patreon for that. And of course, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music. For the podcast, you can check out all their music on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. That's going to do it for this week's show, so enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I'm your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday.